So during the Cold War, the Russians coined a term uh, called disinformatia uh, to refer to their new form of political sabotage. This disinformatia uh, came into our English vocabulary as the word disinformation. You see, uh, the KGB uh, began to flood the world with lies, half-truths, and propaganda. And they they actually placed uh, spies in high levels of um, uh, politics and journalism, entertainment, uh, partially to advance their own agenda, uh, but partially just to throw off the equilibrium of the Western world, to kind of keep us during the Cold War chasing our tails, draining our energy, and most importantly, uh, to blind us of Russia's activity behind the Iron Curtain at this time. Now, if you remember um, your history, the Cold War wasn't much of an actual war, wasn't much of an actual conflict. That's why we say it was cold. Um, But it was a huge turning point in the way that wars began to happen throughout the world. Up until then, uh, you know this, wars were typically fought, you know, out in the open, maybe a a big field or or a battleground between armies that were somewhat equal in size and strength, where allies were known and enemies were clearly identified. But the Cold War began what historians now call the the era of, of dirty wars. Dirty wars, or perhaps better termed uh, dirty conflicts, are, are between nations or ideologies that are now unequal. And so think of uh, the war that's been going on in the Middle East. Why is it that America and our allies haven't been able to stop the war on terrorism? Well, it's because we're not fighting a nation we're fighting an ideology. It's hard to just drop an atomic bomb on an ideology, right? Stealth fighter jets don't do a whole lot of good against an idea, against a lie. No, because lies, they live in the shadows. And I would suggest that as followers of Jesus, we're fighting a dirty war with the disinformation of the devil or darkness, or evil, or lies, or whatever you want to call it. Now, we we may not like this idea of taking sort of military language and placing it on spirituality and connecting it to our faith. Sure, I get it, right? I acknowledge that it's troublesome. It's been misused by many. It's been misused by churches to kind of advance their own agenda. Um, But If you just read through the New Testament, you'll find time and time again that the writers of the New Testament did not shy away from this kind of language. They they said that, that we're in a fight, we're in a battle, that we have some kind of spiritual warfare, even though they never explicitly used that term spiritual warfare. They they talked about a battle or a fight between good and evil or truth and lies. 
And so now this is, this is important. Um, first, the, all the authors, the, the early Christians, um, they were all strict pacifists. And so they talked about this battle as not a battle between people. They, they said, this is not a battle that we have between flesh and blood, but they said between powers and principalities, things that, that we can't see, things that we can't fully understand or grasp, but there is something that, that our souls are kind of at war with. And second, they acknowledge that this kind of war, this kind of battle, it's, it's what we call a dirty war. That the odds are uneven because we, as followers of Jesus, we have the power of Christ. The victory already belongs to God. There's really no war to be won. There's just these kind of lingering battles that still happen within each of us. Because Jesus has already defeated death. He's already defeated evil and injustice on the cross. The the main event is over, but there's still these kind of smaller skirmishes that happen. See, the victory already belongs to God. That, That is clear throughout the Bible. But what's also clear throughout the Bible is that there's still an enemy hiding in the shadows of our world, hiding often in the shadows of our own lives. And that enemy goes by the name Liar. Now, uh, for some of you, I know that you're already a little uneasy uh, with just the introduction of this message. I get it. You're beginning to wonder, okay, when are things going to get really weird and they start bringing out the snakes? Okay, where's, where's the exit door? All right. Um, I, I know. Um, just, just trust me. Okay. Um, uh, because I, I'm talking about something that, that might make us as modern day Americans a little uncomfortable but, but in it, I think that there's this ancient wisdom, and I believe that there's, there's good news for all of us in it today, and there won't be any snakes. Uh, so, you know, sorry to disappoint if you are really looking forward to that. Um, we are going to talk about a snake, though. But first, I want to introduce you uh, to one of my heroes. His name is Evagrius Ponticus. Evagrius Ponticus. He's also known as Evagrius the Solitary. Any, any introverts in the room? Any introverts in the room? Okay, a few of you. My people are here. Good. Glad to see you. Okay. So introverts, this is your patron saint, okay? Saint Evagrius, the introvert. Um, so uh, just a little bit about him. Uh, saint Evagrius, he was, uh, before he became a saint, um, he was kind of a hotshot, uh, sort of a playboy, actually. He almost had an affair with a high-ranking official's wife, and that's when he knew that he had to make a change in his life. And so he had a dream uh, about fleeing the city uh, that he was living in. And so he did. But he not only fled the city, he fled civilization all together. And he withdrew to the desert, get this, in order to fight the devil. As that's what you do, of course, when you go into the desert. Um, but but Evagrius uh, literally thought um, he, he went into the desert to have a sparring match with Satan. And during that time, he wrote this little book, and uh, it's called Talking Back... Get ready. A monastic handbook for combating demons. Isn't that just like the most 
awesome subtitle ever, Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. Um, but as strange as, as Evagrius's story sounds, it, it wasn't actually all that abnormal. During this time, there was actually a bunch of Christians who were uh, withdraw, withdrawing uh, into the desert at this time in order to disconnect from the world and learn how to reconnect with God. Uh, this was actually a, a really fascinating time in the church's history and, and in the world for this matter, um, because this was um, around the 300s. And so um, for 300 years, the first 300 years of Christianity, Christianity was outlawed and persecuted. And then it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, the strongest, most power, powerful powerhouse in the world. Christianity became the thing. And as a result, the church shifted from a persecuted minority to now a political majority. And the result was kind of a mixed bag. On the positive side, um, well, persecution of Christians ended and Christian values now began to be spread into the Roman Empire. But on the negative side, the empire's values now began to be spread into the church. And so it was this time of just like widespread compromise and complicity for the church and for church leaders. And then the Roman Empire was sacked. That for the first time in over a thousand years, the Roman Empire no longer held the big stick in the world. And so it was this time of just like widespread fear within the world and complacency within the church. Does that sound at all familiar to you, right? Historians are saying that the moment that we are living in is actually a lot similar to this moment in the 300s. And so... Um, in the fourth century, I know we're jumping all over history today, but in the fourth century, during the rise of Christianity, the fall of the Roman Empire, Christians actually fled into the wilderness, into the desert. Why? Well, this was sort of a, a new thing. Um, Christians during this time started looking very deeply at Matthew chapter four. They were trying to understand their world, you know, uh, their, their church that now had this place in the world. And, and so they started looking at Matthew chapter four. We're going to look at Matthew chapter four, but just, just a little bit of a backstory here. Um, Matthew chapter three. The story that, that goes right before Matthew chapter four, um, Matthew chapter three is the story of Jesus's baptism. If you remember that story, uh, Jesus uh, goes down into the Jordan River. He's baptized by his cousin, John, as Jesus is coming up out of the water, the heavens open, the spirit of God descends like a dove upon Jesus. It says, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. I find happiness in him, God's son. And then you turn the page to Matthew chapter four. And this is what it says. It says, then the spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness or the desert so that the devil might tempt him. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was starving. Of course he was. The tempter came to him and said, since you are God's son, command these stones to become bread. 
Jesus replied, it's written in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. After that, the devil brought him into the holy city, Jerusalem, and stood him at the highest point of the temple. He said to him, since you are God's son, throw yourself down. For it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up into their hands so that you won't hit your foot against the stone. The devil is quoting uh, the Psalms there. Jesus replied again, it is written back in Deuteronomy again, don't test the Lord your God. Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. He said to him, I'll give you all of these. If you bow down and worship me, Jesus responded, go away, Satan, because it is written once again in Deuteronomy, you will worship the Lord, your God and serve only him. The devil left him and the angels came and took care of him. Okay. So uh, let's just kind of look at this passage just for, just for a moment, Uh, just like Evagrius, just like the desert fathers and mothers did. First thing is that you'll notice this takes place out in the wilderness, out in the desert. Uh, The desert is the place that you go to, to go and encounter God in prayer, for sure. Um, But the desert is, it's more than just like a Sabbath for your soul or like a day spa for introverts. The desert is where you go to encounter yourself, and the shadow side of yourself as well. The, the good, the bad, the ugly, all the things that are tucked down in the catacombs of your soul. It's the place where all of you is laid bare before all that God is. A, a solitary place where there's nothing outside of you to distract from what is within you. But also... The desert is this place where you go to encounter this thing or this creature called the devil or the Satan or the evil one or whatever Jesus calls him. That Jesus was tempted by the devil out in the desert. So uh, let's talk about the devil for a minute, shall we? Sounds like a fun thing. Um, Now, in our postmodern world, it might be easy to kind of just like write off the notion of the devil as some sort of pre-modern myth. It's right up there with Thor's hammer and the big bad wolf, right? And we get this because, you know, oftentimes the devil is portrayed as this sort of cartoony caricature of this little red man with a cape and a pitchfork and a pencil thin mustache, just this kind of like pithy image that you could flick right off your modern day shoulders or or put on your modern day noise canceling headphones and you just shut them up, right? Or, or the devil has been the usual suspect for everything that goes wrong and awry in the world, right? You've heard those claims before, right? The devil made me burn my toast this morning, ah, right? And so we, we have a hard time imagining and thinking about the devil, and we just don't like to think about it, right? Um, but it's important. So um, I want us to just maybe suspend judgment um, of what some preconceived notions that we have of the devil, and I want to suggest Jesus's view of the devil or the Satan or the accuser. And for Jesus, the devil is real. Now, 
maybe not wearing, you know, red tights and a pitchfork and a pencil-thin mustache. And, and I don't like the idea of personifying or even sort of materializing the devil, uh, but real, real in the sense that this evil power does actually have power in our world and in our lives. And I know that this thought might make us kind of uncomfortable makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't really study demonology all that much. It's not something that in my free time, I just think about the devil. Um, But Jesus talked about the devil or the Satan or the accuser or the prince of this world as a very real threat to our peace and our joy. And so here's Jesus's I think kind of most succinct and and sort of on point teaching on the devil. Uh, It comes from John chapter eight, a little bit of background about this. Uh, Jesus is now in uh, the city of Jerusalem where he's meeting with the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. They get into this kind of big teaching debate um, and and tensions start to rise. And so uh, Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, and this is what he says to them. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, you are truly my disciples. If you remain faithful to my teaching, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. But they responded, we are Abraham's children. We've never been anyone's slave. How can you say that we will be set free? Which, by the way, that's not actually true because there's a whole book about like Exodus and how they were slaves to Egypt. Anyways, Jesus answered, I assure you that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave isn't a permanent member of the household, but a son is. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you really will be free. I know that you are Abraham's children. You're Jewish people. Oh, I know that. Yet you want to kill me because you don't welcome my teaching. I'm telling you that I've seen, I'm telling you what I've seen when I am with the father, but you are doing what you heard from your father. Oh, who's their father? (laughs) They replied, our father is Abraham. Jesus responded, if you were Abraham's children, if Abraham was your father, you would do what you would do Abraham's works. Instead, you want to kill me, though I am the one who has spoken the truth I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You are doing your father's works. Again, who is our father? They said, our ancestry isn't in question. The only father we have is God. Pay attention to this. Jesus replied, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God. Here I am. I haven't come on my own. God sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't really hear my words. Get this. Your father is the devil. Ouch. You are his children and you want to do what your father, the devil wants. He was a murderer from the beginning He has never stood for truth because there's no truth in him. That's important. Whenever that liar speaks, he speaks according to his own nature because he's a liar and the father of liars. Because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. 
Who among you can show I am guilty of sin since I speak the truth and you don't believe me? God's children, listen to God's words. You don't listen to me because you aren't God's children. Okay, wow, a lot going on there. Um, but just notice, notice a few things that Jesus mentions about the devil or Satan. Jesus sees the devil as real. Uh, uh, and whether that's like a literal spiritual being or a notion of psychosomatic thinking or evolutionary theory or just toxic thoughts, there, there is this evil force in the world, whatever, the devil, the accuser, the father of lies is a force to be reckoned with. Notice also Jesus says that the devil speaks in his own native tongue, according to his nature as the father of lies, the father of liars. And third, Jesus says that the devil's end goal is death. He's, he's anti-life, anti-love, and pro-chaos. Jesus says he is a murderer from the beginning. Now, Jesus is uh, referring back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, the temptation story in Genesis chapter 3. You remember that story, uh, the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, during that story, first couple pages of the Bible, um, you find uh, Adam, whose name means human, and Eve, uh, and her name literally means life. So think about that. Life ends up being tricked by the devil, the Satan, the accuser, the serpent, and she's tricked into thinking that she can have autonomy on her own and she doesn't actually need to trust God. Now, now we think of that story in Genesis chapter three and we modern day people, we say uh, a talking snake, really? But before we write off that story as some kind of pre-modern nonsense, we have to understand that the people in the ancient Near East, uh, they were aware, just as we are, that reptiles don't talk, okay? This is not something you need an advanced degree in molecular biology to understand, that, that snakes don't talk. So they were well aware that there was actually something else deep at play in this story, that, that life itself has fallen into deception. And so the devil, this crafty, deceitful serpent comes after Eve, not with, not with a stick, not with a weapon, but with an idea, an idea weaponized and an idea. If you remember the story that has some truth to it, it's almost realistic, almost believable, but there's that 5% that's a lie that just gets twisted around the truth. And so the serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree? If you remember the command, God said, you can eat from every tree in the garden, except, except for one. But, but do you hear in the serpent, there's, there's that mostly true thing, but that 5% lie that just gets twisted around it. And Genesis 3 is this fascinating story because it shows how lives work their way into our lives. And this is where it gets really interesting, I think. So if you've kind of tuned out or you're like confused, tune back in. Um, the devil's goal is to decimate love and his method are lies. His signature move 
is deception all throughout scripture. Not, not, not outright lies, right? Like, hey, guess what? Elvis is actually alive, right? No. Um, but his, his signature move is deception, the twisting of the truth. And this is why Jesus came to us as a rabbi. A rabbi is a teacher. And what is a teacher? A teacher is a truth teller. A teacher is, is someone who helps us make mental maps so that we can understand the reality, the truth of our world. And in that reality, in that truth that we find, it actually sets us free to live a life of good. And there is not a soul, there is not a soul in this world who is not in bondage to some kind of lie. And we need a good teacher to help us unlearn the lies. And so Evagrius uh, said that, that our, our spirituality and our struggles are, as a whole um, are, are being attacked by these three enemies. Um, the, the first is what he called the logosmai. Um, it's, uh, you could translate that. It's a Greek word. You could translate it as, as thoughts or thought patterns or internal narratives. It's kind of like that, that soundtrack that plays in your mind all the time, right? Today we would call them um, toxic thoughts, or uh, psychologists would call them negative ruminations, right? All, all the same thing. But, but Evagrius would say that these deceptive thoughts, they then play into our disordered desires that are then normalized in our unjust and sinful society. We'll talk about those two things uh, in the next couple weeks. But Evagrius said that the, this logosmai, they, they're not just thoughts, but these logosmai are, are animated by some kind of demonic force. Okay, now let's just acknowledge that sounds a little crazy, right? To us postmodern Christians living in 2023 America, the devil told me to do so, right? Just, just suspend judgment for a moment. Um, have you ever had a thought that just kind of did like a B and E on your mind, just kind of broke in and entered without ringing the doorbell first. And, and that thought came almost with like a will of its own, like a malignant will of its own, forcing its way into your mind to take over the soundtrack that's playing, right? To, to turn on its own music. It's, it's the grown man who was berated by his father and who comes to believe for himself that I'm only as good as I am successful at work. It's the teenage girl who uh, just scrolls through Instagram and comes to believe I'm ugly and unworthy of love. It's the middle-aged woman who was raised by an angry and perfectionist mother. And decades later, she still believes that I have to be perfect in order to have peace. That, that's, that's the lies that Evagrius is talking about. Uh, Evagrius would say that there's, there's something more than just the thought. And, and so where, where does the devil aim his weapons? He aims it at our minds, at our thoughts. Now, maybe demonic thoughts <laughs> sounds, sounds a little far-fetched. Our, our culture, though, we would call the, these like negative thoughts, toxic thinkings. Or, or an evolutionary psychologist would say, you know, 
Just our human brain, it's hardwired to like scan the horizon and look for threats. So we all have this bent towards negative thinking, whatever. Okay. I can't speak to any of those. I speak from just a biblical perspective, but, but I think that we're all talking about the same thing, just with different labels on it. Either way, the result is that our minds, rather than being a place of peace and joy, often seem like they're a battleground between truth and lies. You see this in our culture, right? Uh, A battleground between peace and chaos, but between thoughts that lead to life and thoughts that lead to death and destruction. And so here's the question. How, how do we fight these deceptive thoughts? This, is, this was Evagrius' whole thing, his handbook to combating, you know, demonic forces. Well, Evagrius and the other uh, desert fathers and mothers, they would tell us, Take a closer look at what Jesus did in the desert when he was tempted in Matthew chapter four. And so if you notice, notice that Jesus responds to every temptation of the devil with a passage of scripture. So Evagrius would say, you know, you, you need to curate a collection of truths, read scripture, study scripture, memorize scripture, meditate on scripture. This is what the New Testament authors called having the mind of Christ, thinking the way that Jesus thinks. It's not just to think about Jesus, but it's to think Jesus, to to think the way that Jesus thinks, to, to let the mind of Christ actually be formed in your mind. And they say, how do we do that? Well, you steep yourself in God's story. The, the second way to combat demonic forces is what Evagrius would call talking back or, or counter talking. It's speaking relevant passages of scripture that cut off the deceptive lies or, or affirmations from God that, that cut off the soundtrack that keeps playing in your mind. Uh, again, this is what Jesus was doing. It's not some magic incantation. It, it's Jesus refusing to allow the enemy's lies into his spiritual field of vision. And, and This might sound kind of weird, uh, but neuroscientists are promoting the same thing. Counselors, therapists, they they call it thought redirection, right? Maybe you've heard of that before. And it's just, it's weaving new thought patterns through neuroplasticity in our brains. Um, Neuropsychologist Donald Hebb, maybe you've heard of uh, Hebb before and Hebb's law. Um, He came up with this kind of scientific law. So that essentially states that neurons that fire together, wire together. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Which is to say that when you think a thought, it is easier to think that thought again and again and again and again. And it's then much harder not to think that thought anymore. So if you were raised with a lie that you're worthless, that that your value is only dependent upon what you can do. It's hard to not think that thought. Hebb says that that our brains are are kind of like a dirt road. You've been down a dirt road before. Uh, You notice that, that the road is now shaped and curved 
by all the vehicles that travel up and down it. Just like all the thoughts that go back and forth through our brain, the same path and these ruts begin to form. And then after a while, your tires on your car just can't help but slip right into the ruts. You just can't help but slip right into their thoughts. And those thoughts can either be good or they can be bad. And so I ask you, what, what ruts have been carved into your mind? What lies have been carved? Or what truths have been carved? Friends, I tell you that the God's truth about you is that you are a beloved child of God and a person of worth. That's what God speaks over you. That is God's truth about you. Do you believe that? Or have you fallen into the rut of lies? The third thing for um, combating demonic forces. Uh, actually, I'll, ta- I'll take this from the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley. Um, John Wesley, he had kind of these simple rules. And one of them was just a reminder. He would tell uh, uh, Jesus followers, he would, he would remind them, you know, stay in love with God. He called it practicing the ordinances of your faith. But, but really, it just meant, you know, practicing the spiritual disciplines but, but remembering, you know, where your heart is supposed to be directed. Give your attention to God because God is here. God is available to you. And we're actually going to practice this uh, one together today uh, through communion. You know, this is what John Wesley said. You know, this is how you stay in love with God. You, you come together and you receive God's grace with one another. You know, it's, it's interesting too, because, um, a lot of times uh, when temptation comes to us, when, when those deceptive thoughts come our way, we're usually isolated, right? Or we're hanging out with the wrong crowd. Think back to Genesis chapter three. Uh, it's the first time that we see where a human being, Eve, is separated from Adam and also from God. That's when the deceptive thoughts come in, when we're isolated and alone. And so we come together today. Yeah, to praise God, to, to sit under teaching. We, we come together also as a community, as a family, to gather around the table of Jesus and to hear this truth. You are worth this. <laughs> You are worth Jesus's body being broken and bloodshed on the cross for you. That's how much God loves you.